Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, the gentleman on my show today has had a really great career, whether it be, you know, playing guitar, songwriting, and, and he's doing right now a lot of work with veterans. And we're going to talk about that and his whole career. And my guest is Billy Crane. How you doing, Billy? I'm doing great, Steve. How are you? Good. I want to ask you, I was going through your bio, and it said, because I'm 10 minutes outside Philadelphia, and it said, back in the day, you and Dickie Betts were playing in memory of Elizabeth Reed in a hotel in Philadelphia real early in the morning. Do you remember that? I remember very well. We were playing at the Spectrum, uh, and it was, it was uh, I was with the Henry Paul band. We were opening, we did a couple year tour with the Almond Brothers band, and uh, we had the night off, and it was, I remember it was snowing. And I can't remember what hotel what is, but we went over to where the almonds were, and, and uh, it was about one o'clock in the morning. And I was sitting up in Dickie's room, hanging out with him, and he said, he told the broker, he said, "Hey, go down and get us a couple acoustic guitars." And they broke them out, and we started playing in memory of Elizabeth Reed, you know. And I'm just in awe because he was my hero growing up, and uh, uh, that Spectrum show is probably in my top five shows of, that I've ever done. It was just an amazing show. The Spectrum, well, I saw so many concerts there. The Spectrum was an amazing place. It's gone now, but it was one of those things. It was just legendary because it was it was in the middle of the Spectrum, and they had the Vet, which was the baseball stadium. They had JFK. It was a big outdoor stadium. So it was this whole complex, and it was it was such a great time for music. It's you know I, I, I go to concerts still, but back then, you know, when you went in the concert, you'd always smell the whiff of marijuana. You'd see a Frisbee flying around. The lighters would go on, and, and it was just a special time, and, and you you lived that time, so it must have been great, and it must give you great memories to think back about those times. Oh, it was. It, you know what? It, 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 that time of music was just amazing, uh, uh, all the things that were going on, you know. It, we were always, I was laughing. I went out with the Outlaws not too long ago and did some shows. We, we played up in Sellersville, you know, up there in the uh, Sellersville Theater, and uh, you know, back then it was great. You get on the bus, nobody knew where you were. Uh, you go do sound check and everything. Now, nowadays, everybody's got one of these. Yep. They know where you are on the bus every minute of the day. You get the sound check. You're in your shorts. You're in your cowboy boots. You know, and 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 you look out, and the place is already half full with people because they know exactly what time you're gonna gonna be there. And doing this, and it, it used to not be that way, man. It was it was such a a cool private thing, and it was it was just so much better. It shows, you know, it was such a camaraderie and everything. And now it's just it's crazy. Well, and then you get there, and the people they're they're all videoing the concert instead of watching it. And I'm like, you know, I was at a concert. It was at BB and T, Freedom New Freedom Mortgage in Camden. And this lady has, like, her iPad, and she's recording the show. I'm like, you're not even watching the show. Like, I go to a concert to sit back and listen and watch and enjoy. Not to tape, because I'm never going to watch it again, and it's shitty quality anyway. Oh, I know it. I, well, I pulled a good one. There's a, we were playing a show down in Florida, and uh, a good friend of mine was right up on the front uh, in, in, during the show, 
he was he's a huge Florida fan, and it was I think it was a Florida Florida State game or Florida Georgia game. One or the other was on. He was watching the game while we were playing. I saw him do it. It was down to the last two minutes, and I snatched the phone right out of his hand when, <laughs> and put it in my pocket when I'm playing. <laughs> he never forgave me for that, especially because Florida lost. <laughs> now I want to get to your career, but I want to first talk about your work with Road Warrior Music because you know it's funny. I, you know, I was at a birthday party a few weeks ago, one of my wife's friends, and one of the, she has a group of friends, and one of their husbands did two tour, two tours, and he's, you know, and it affects him. You know, you talk to him, he's there, but then another guy sitting at the table was in the military for a while, but never did any tours, but they started talking and they hit it off and it was good. And it's just, it's amazing, you know, and you've really, you're addressing the fact that, you know, and I watched the video when you were talking, you were, the guys were talking in the VA and, and it's really amazing that people aren't aware about it, about what these gentlemen and women go through when they come back. But how did you get involved with this whole the whole scene, and it seems very altruistic, and it seems very good because a lot of times, you know, people of your stature, you're, you're, you've, you've had a great career, don't really pay attention to that stuff. Well, you know, and, and you hit it right, I really didn't pay attention to that stuff until I had a guy call me out of the blue. There's a thing called Sound Cores in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it's a list of musicians. It's got like 12,000 songwriters and musicians on it. And I happened to be on that somehow um, uh, from playing shows down there. And this guy, Al Jarvis, who was a veteran, called me up and said, look, we have this organization down here. Um, would you like to come down and be a guest? And I said, well, tell me about it. And he said, well... We have songwriters come in and, and sit in, and we bring uh, veterans in. We try to get them to tell their story, and we'll write a song around it. And I said, sure, sure, I, you know, I'll try, I'll try that out. And uh, that was six years ago. I ended up joining, volunteering every other week, and, and it was an organization called Freedom Sings USA that's out of Chattanooga. And what they do is, is you can. The hardest thing for these guys and women to do is to tell their story because some of them are so intense and and, and they've been through so much. Um, if you can get them talking, first of all, if you can get them to tell their story, so we'll get them to tell their story and we'll write it out. And then we'll ask them what kind of music you like. Do you like rap? Do you like hard rock? Do you like country? Then we'll write this song. Then we go in the studio and record it and make a CD out of it. And it has this um, miraculous effect on these men and women that they're being listened to, that uh, uh, they're telling their story, you know, for really maybe for the first time. And so um, they get involved, too, with other veterans coming in. So it, it, it has this ripple effect. And, and I've watched, like, this one gentleman, Roger, hadn't been out of his house in 10 years, started coming. And now he's been coming every week for, for uh, I mean, every other week for six years, too, since I've been there. And it's real involved, and he's president, actually, of the board down there. So it's, it's, uh, it's been an amazing thing. What did you expect, though, the first time you went down there? I mean, you know, it, it was you, you, I'm sure you didn't expect that you'd be 
doing it now for six years. It must have been weird because you weren't really sure what you're going into. And as you said, you weren't really aware what the veterans were going to. But when you first pulled in there, what were you expecting to happen? I had no idea. And, and, and the funny thing was, it was, it was very, very uh, uh, organized the way they did it. The two other songwriters uh, from Nashville, the two really big time songwriters were doing it. And it was very organized, and it was 30 vets in there, and you had to raise your hand and when you wanted to talk. And uh, they just all said, okay, we're going to give you a Thursday night class, which was, we ended up calling it the Table of Misfit Toys. It was, <laughs> and, and by the end, there was no raising your hands. It, it got pretty wild, uh, uh, but uh, I, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I just immediately started doing it because they're, uh, man, their hearts were amazing and they were amazing people, you know. Uh, what we see as them of, as Americans is we don't see their heart. We don't know, you know, they're just doing their job. That's, I mean, I can remember, you might, you might bet, do you remember if the Vietnam days where you, if you were around back then, uh, you know the protests and all. I was. That I, stuff. I'm. 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 I'm 60. So I, I missed. I was oh, a little bit young for that. You you caught the tail end of it though, because you remember it was six seventy six when we finally pulled out of there, and and because I was I was I was supposed to go to uh, uh, Vietnam, and I was number twenty on the draft, and and Tricky Dicky pardoned me. <laughs> Richard Nixon did something for me, and it's a good thing because I probably I would have never made it you know, uh, through that war, but, uh, you know, I was totally against war and all that protester, but that, that kind of all went away. And then as I got to really know and understand what these vets go through and, you know, now there's some of my best friends and I, and, and they've taken me in as one of their own and I would do anything for them. And that's why I'm doing this now. Now, now the song "Something Worth Fighting For" came out. Um, I yeah. saw the video. Now, tell me about how you is that song shaped from different stories? Did you? I mean, how did how did that song come about? That one, uh, I wrote. Normally, I write with other vets. I wrote this in Florida. Um, I left the organization I was with uh, in Chattanooga. There, there was some things going on that, that I, I wasn't happy with. And we were supposed to have a, a different campaign. It was going to be called Hey America. And we were waiting on this contract to be finalized. Well, they never held up to their end of the bargain. And this contract passed. And I, I got stuck with the, pretty much the bill of, of funding this whole thing. So I split off on my own and started my own company, Rogue Warrior Music, which is, is, is we're going to have, uh, have a, a therapeutic songwriting is what it is. It's called here in, uh, in, in Smyrna in Nashville area. And I went, I was in Florida. We were on vacation for spring break with me, my, my wife and kids and, and my, uh, Steve Karras, uh, my campaign guy said, well, got to have a new song. So I sit down there, I wrote a new song and, and recorded it and had it done two weeks later. And uh, 
and put that out. And, and, and it's basically telling the story uh, of, of the veterans. What's happening now is the suicide rate for these vets with PTSD. It was 22 a day. It, they say it's 25 a day. I've heard it's more like 45 a day that we're losing every day. Um, they're not getting the help that, that they need. Um, you know, the VA is overwhelmed. Plus, dealing with the VA is a whole beast in itself. And, and their medical treatment's about 30 years behind ours. Um, my one friend down in Chattanooga uh, and partner, he's on 26 different drugs. They, you know, they don't know what to do with them. They just throw pills at them and told, told you know, my, my psychiatrist, I asked him that one time, I said, what do you do if you don't know how to treat somebody? You just throw them up throw uh, pills in the wall so something sticks and he goes exactly <laughs> $190 later yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was how that came out and I wanted to get a song out uh, that, that relays what they you know have been through and what they do and what they're going through now that, that maybe people might wake up because these guys, especially the ones from Iraq and Afghanistan, came back and people were calling them baby killers and spitting on them and, and cursing them. And, and you know what? They're just doing their job. They're in the military. They do what they're told to do. And they come back here. Nobody understands them. They have this weird, weird, it's not even a disease. I don't even know what they call it. They just go. And, and a lot of Americans do have, have PTSD. It's just not the military. You know, so I'm trying to raise awareness to, 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 to get help for these guys. I don't know, you know, it's a God thing, hopefully, that that, that people jump on board and uh, it, it's starting to get a little ripple effect going. And, and uh, thankfully for people like you, it would take time, you know, to have a, somebody like me come on your show. Uh, and I really appreciate that. Well, yeah, it's something. It's something. It, it, it uh, you, you know, you, you, it's a something that has to be um, addressed. But also, I want to talk about your career because you've had an amazing career. I mean, you know, when when did you start playing music? Because you've been playing. I mean, you were back. You have been playing for a long time. When did you pick up the guitar for the first time? I mean, well, I'm 69 now, and I was just thinking last night. I've been playing 60 years. Uh, at, 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 you remember my brother, Tommy Crane, was in the Charlie Daniels band during the he uh, Devil Went Down in Georgia heyday from 75 to 88. Uh, him, we, my, my family, there was always music going on in the family. My mom was a was a concert pianist, and my dad was always playing the boogie-woogie and stuff. And So we always had music going on. And uh, uh, Tommy got a guitar. See, he was... He was 10, and I was 7, so I, it would have been 61, and he got a guitar and uh, learned how to play it, and I wanted to learn how to play, and but he wouldn't let me play his guitar. So one day he wasn't there, and I got his guitar out, and I was playing it, and I broke a string, and I didn't know you could fix a string, so I thought I broke his guitar, and, and of course I went and hid under my mom's bed for three hours, and he came home and saw it. He laughed. He didn't say anything. He left me under there for three hours. He finally looked under and he said, Hey, Billy, you can come out now. I can fix the string. 
<laughs> but he uh, he started showing me chords then, and um, and we kind of started playing together. Um, and, and and of course, then in '63 the Beatles came out, and I saw Hard Day's Night, and I saw guys with long hair getting chased down the street by globs of women, and I went, "That's what I want to do." <laughs> Still wait for those women to come chase me down the street, but uh, so I, I, you know, I always played music. I knew exactly what I wanted to do uh, my whole life. I was always in some kind of band, and then in the, the late 60s, uh, early 70s, when the Allman Brothers Band came out. Uh, uh, Tommy and I had seen them when they were the Allman Joys. They'd come to town a few times, and then when the Allman Brothers Band came out, we would go see them quite a bit. Tommy got to know uh, Wayne some and and Dickie. I I was only 15, so I I was too scared to talk to them, you know. And we started playing together we had a band called the Flat Creek Band that had a big following in the South. Uh, after a while, that, that band broke up. Tommy went off to join the uh, Charlie Daniels Band in '75, and and I was uh, playing with various bands around Nashville. In '77, I got a call from producer Paul Hornsby uh, from from uh, Macon, Georgia, from uh, uh, Capricorn Records. Uh, he produced the uh, Marshall Tucker records and played piano and all that. And and he said, "Do you how, how you want to play uh, uh, with Bobby Whitlock?" And Bobby Whitlock was, of course, out of Derek and the Dominoes. Was uh, played with Derek Dominoes with Clapton and played with Blaney and Bonnie. And I said, "Yes, absolutely. I was doing nothing." <laughs> so I go up. I get in the car with a friend and drive up to this little bar in Cookville, Tennessee. It's about eighty miles east of Nashville, and this bar was out in the middle of nowhere. And I mean, here he was, Bobby Whitlock in the flesh, man. I mean, I was just freaking out. And I jumped up and played the set with him. I got good and drunk. I, I, I was borrowing a guy's Marshall amp. I spilled a whiskey on it, blew his amp up. <laughs> Ended up, uh, Bobby loved me. And well, I got, he had a 57 Chevy, he rode 57 Chevy that he traveled to take the band around. And, I ended up spending the whole year um, riding around the country with him, played the Armadillo down out in Austin, and uh, played up in Baltimore, the Marble Bar, I think was the name of the place they had back up then, and did all that. Um, then got a call from in 1977 from Henry Paul from the Outlaws. He had just left the Outlaws and was putting together a band and that had gotten a uh, recording contract on Atlantic Records, and I was—I mean, to finally have a contract—that's what I've been working towards all those years. And it ended up joining the Henry Paul Band, and that—that uh, that was really the stepping stone for for this uh, for my career. I mean, we were out toured, we toured with the Rolling Stones, CZ Top, and what, the what, what was that like? Like, you know, you go, you're playing bars, as you said, you're the Marble Bar, and this, and then all of a sudden. A few years later, you're you're on tour with ZZ Top and the Stones. I mean, what is that like for a musician? Because it's 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 got to be, yeah, you're good at what you do, else you wouldn't be getting hired. But there's a difference between playing at a bar and playing for a 
like as you said in the spectrum and stuff like that. I mean, how do you how did you adjust to that? How did you adjust to that? And, and what how crazy was it back then? Because that's when rock and roll was rock and roll. I mean, southern rock was huge. I mean, it was a different time. You know, you could bring booze into the the venue. I remember that. But what was that like for you? Tell me some stories from that time because that's just oh. stuff like this fascinates me. <clears throat> it, well, it was a wild time. I'll tell you what, it was like the Wild West, you know. There was always, we had, every band would have a rider. You would have tons of alcohol backstage and, and food and whatever you needed and stuff. And um, uh, it was, for me, it, it, was, it was amazing. Now, now, my brother had taught me a really great lesson. He had taught me, he said, Billy, one thing you, you got to remember is, those people are here are here to see you and they're they're the reason that you have a job and a career so always treat them with respect so i i made a lot of friends over the year by by doing that and and so i learned to be respectful but then i learned to uh i was always the drunkest guy in the bar when when the band went out it went we uh we, we we did a lot of partying with the Henry Paul band, and uh, Henry used to get a bottle of whiskey, and uh, he'd go out there and pour it over the crowd during the show. I would get so mad. I was going, man, you're pouring out my drinking. <laughs> Don't do that. But we would, we we first, we got a tour. We First, we had a Winnebago. You know, Winnebagos aren't made for rock and roll tours. I think we burned up a couple of them. And, uh, then, then you all of a sudden you're on a, a nice tour bus. You know you got your own bunk and with a stereo in it, and uh, it's it was an amazing feeling, man. And, and and to meet all the fans and get to hang out and with them. The, the the hard side of it was you go out going, you go do these shows and and, and they're high powered. Henry Paul Band was a high powered Southern rock band. Uh, very high energy, a uh, lot of movement on stage. You know, most Southern rock acts didn't move as much as we did, and, and we we were a very high powered act. And then all of a sudden, that show's over, and you're back in the hotel room, and you're looking at the wall. And uh, you know, normally uh, for me, uh, I ended up towards drugs and alcohol. I always not there was. Uh, I'm sure we can say it's on here, but there was lots of cocaine around back in. Oh, I'm, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. I believe me. I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm a victim of the '80s. I know. Believe me, there was. Yeah, yeah. I've been in, in recovery for 30 years now. Which, thank, thank you, Jesus. But there was always lots of that around, and uh, uh, we we just partied hard. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a great story about me and Tommy. Uh, Charlie Daniels. He started. He started a. a uh, rule, I guess about '81. There, there was, there's always so much cocaine around and, and drugs just everywhere, and they were starting to have problems with the crew and the band and stuff. And so he started this rule: you're wired, you're fired. And of course, Tommy and I didn't pay any attention to that. And we, we were, I with the uh, uh, the HPB, Henry Paul man, HPB was opening for the Charlie Daniels man. So we were on this long, long tour, and Charlie one night. There's a knock on the door, and Tommy and I were both in there just going away, having a great time, you know, just being brothers. 
and Charlie, Charlie comes popping in. Charlie never comes to Tommy's room, and he looks at it and he goes, what y'all boys doing? And Tommy looks at him and just looks at us, oh, we're just being brothers. And he said, all right, carry on. He walked out, and, and he, uh, he went, Whoosh. I said, Tommy, go look in the mirror. And he went, look, he had circles all around his nose. And, man, I was so special. Like, man, I'm so glad he didn't get fired. But uh, it was just a wild, it was like the Wild West back then. What What made you get sober? What, what Was there a defining moment? Because I've talked to people when there is a defining moment or they just said, my body can't take this anymore. Because, you know, people don't understand as you said, the life you guys have, because I did stand-up comedy for eight years on the road. People always want to buy you a drink when you get off. And that's just a comedy club. You guys are in venues. You guys are in front of people. You guys are rock, you know, southern rock stars, rock stars. You're, you're musicians. So it's there for the taking. What made you get sober? You said it's been 30 years, which congratulations. But what made you get sober? You know, I... Um... I, I came off the road uh, uh, with a, some some really bad back problems and chronic pain problems, and I'd gotten on onto to some harder prescription uh, narcotic medicines and stuff. And it was <clears throat> I got real depressed from taking this medicine and being on it. And I remember my my first wife finally. And I had young kids at the time. I had. My, my daughter was only two, and and my son was eight, I think, at the time. And I remember it was right before Christmas of 1991, and my first wife said, we're so sick of walking on eggshells around here. And I realized I would lay on the couch for a week at a time, and, and I was just miserable. And I, I had a friend, John Cowan, who plays bass with the Doobie Brothers now, uh, went to uh, AA and said, hey, why don't you come to a meeting with me? And I, and I went to him and I just continued to go and stay because I wanted to get, I, I mean, I smoked tons of pot and and drank tons of whiskey and, and did everything else. I mean, everything in my life surrounded drugs. And then the defining moment was Keith Urban was at first moved to Nashville in the early 90s and stayed with me uh, for a while. Uh, he was just breaking uh, over. He was called, just come over from Australia, and my, my music publisher had me uh, working with him. And he had, he had mentioned to another friend of mine on Music Row, uh, where everybody wrote and everything, he said, he said, Billy Crane's a great writer, but he is the most unfocused writer I've ever worked with because I was only good for about 10 minutes of and my attention span was somewhere else. And that was a defining moment. I said, man, I got to stop now or it's going to destroy my career. And so, with the grace of God, you know, 30 years later, I'm still hanging in there. Now, now, when, you know, you, you, you said your publishing career and you've written music for a lot of people. When did you... When did you personally start writing music? Was it something that you always wrote, like, stuff as a kid or when did you get into you know you already you're playing guitar but when did you get into the whole writing process the, uh, when the Allman Brothers band came out and I heard Greg singing it and uh, singing my cross 
Ain't My Cross to Bear and, and, uh, and the blues songs that they would do, you know, uh, uh, Statesboro Blues and stuff. Uh, I, I love the old blues masters, uh, Lion Willie McTell and, and Robert Johnson and stuff. So I wrote a song called Schoolhouse Blues. I, I was in sophomore high school and I wanted out of school and it's, uh, I can't even remember, it, I can't even remember the words it was, but it basically said I, I wanted out of school. It was called the Schoolhouse Blues, and uh, I, I, you know, I wanted this band to, to 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 be able to to further itself and not just be a copy band, a cover band. So I started writing songs in, and then in the Henry Paul band, I uh, I wrote uh, uh, pretty much a lot of songs on, on all four of the records with, with Henry co-wrote. And then at that point, uh, when that brand broke up, I would join the Bellamy Brothers down uh, for 10 years down in Florida and went out on the road with them. And uh, I uh, started writing for them and I had a, in 1988 had a top five country single, uh, which helped facilitate my move back from Florida to Nashville and I got a publishing deal then and started writing professionally. Now, when you're writing professionally and you're writing for someone else, do you ever sit there and write a song and say, man, I want to keep that one for me? I, I would think like it's like a, because you know, when you write, it's like your baby. It's like, you know, and I understand, like I've written jokes for people and you go, oh man, I wrote a sketch for someone and I'm like, man, that'd be really good. But I'm like, oh, I'm getting paid, so I have to give it to them. Then you sort of get pissed at yourself. You're like, damn it, you know. But what is it like? Cause do you do they tell you who you're writing for? Like, like you know, you've written for the Dixie Chicks. Did they say you're writing for the Dixie Chicks, or how do they, how do they go about finding out who you're going to write for? How do you or you just sit down and they say write? Well, it, that was pretty much how it was. They they had a whole system down here. Um, with the, all the A&R people, they would submit a list out of all the artists that were recording or going to be recording, the, uh, the, what kind of songs they were looking for, uh, and you would get this list and you, you could target them like uh, the one Martina McBride uh, hit we had. Um, uh, we knew which a song she was looking for, one more song for her record, and Myself and Tammy Hyler, our co-writer, um, came out here to the studio I'm in now on a, a, a Tuesday. And, or no, we rode down the road on, on a Tuesday. On Saturday, we came here to my studio and recorded it. And on following Tuesday, my wife, who was a song plugger, she pitched the song to the artist, went and played it for Martina, and they cut it that following Thursday. It was that quick of a process. But... but uh, yeah, you you would try to do, try to, to guess, you know, okay, what's what's the artist going to want to sing, or uh, it, it was it's a crazy process. It's totally changed now. But yeah, it was funny when you talk about songs that you wanted to keep. I, uh, Paul Worley, who was was my boss for a long long time, and, and who was Dixie Chicks producer, uh, I brought him a song once and. And there was a, a smaller artist wanted to cut it, and I, I didn't want to give it to him. And he said, well, why not? And he said, I said, well, somebody better can cut it. He said, he said, if you think that's the best song you've ever written, 
He said, you better walk out that door right now because you're going to write plenty more. And I always heard what you said, what people say, but that song's my baby. And I say, well, that baby needs an abortion. I shouldn't say that's the wrong thing to say in this day and age. But Now, you've, you know, you look at your bio, you know, you said you've gotten big, big royalty paychecks and you've gotten small, small royalty paychecks. But at one point, it says you were shoveling manure to pay child support. How, how does that happen? Because it says you get this huge check. I mean, was it just you, you spent all the money or, or what happens? Well, no. <clears throat> uh, um, actually, uh, I was um, the, the whole music scene started changing in the 2000s. Uh, they started phasing out the, the staff songwriters like me. The artists were writing their own songs because they figured out that's where all the money was. The record companies were taking all the money, so the artists realized that um, that for them to have to actually make enough money to make a living, they needed to be writing these songs themselves. So they would write with with certain top writers that had tens, twenty, thirties, number ones, and stuff, and. Um, so I had lost my publishing deal at the time. And I was, I mean, I was making, gosh, uh, after the Dixie Chicks, that song was huge. I was making a quarter million dollars a year off, off of this song. It was it was uh, on their first record and it sold 20 million, or what, 13 million copies. And it was a big payer. Then all of a sudden I was at, without a, any income whatsoever, ever. We had invested this money, thank goodness. And, and my wife was working, but and I, I had enough money coming in. I had a small publishing deal that was paying my bills, but I didn't have enough to pay my child support. And it was it was only like three hundred dollars a month. And I was I've never only job I ever had in my life was working in the church as a janitor when I was eighteen because I've always played music and I was I was. Like, well, where am I going to get my child support? I'd never miss a child support check. And my neighbor down the street said, Bill, you know anybody that, that uh, wants to clean horse stalls? I, I have horses. I said, yeah, I can shovel horse manure. So for a year and a half, I shoveled horse manure for actually, it, got, it was 300 bucks a month, exactly what my child support was. And then after that year and a half, I got another good publishing deal. And the day I got that deal, that job that he said i don't need anybody anymore that was a god thing right there that's crazy <laughs> now now you also you started playing with the outlaws and i gotta ask you something because you know as i said i'm 60 and i remember you know back in the day man skinner molly hatchet you know the outlaws like southern rock and i grew up i grew up in the suburbs of new jersey and southern rock though man we loved that like, Southern Rock was everywhere. You could not get away from it. You know, you put it on the radio, like the Philadelphia radio stations. Then it sort of disappeared. Why do you think it sort of disappeared? Like, it wasn't, it was like everywhere. Like, Molly Hatchet was so big back then. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wait, we never, we don't even hear about classic rock now. What do you think happened to Southern Rock? Because you're, 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 you've been involved with it for so long. Jer well, I tell you what, first of all, we would get excited when we were coming to Jersey because Jersey was so much fun to, to play the shoreline up there and and all there were so many small cities that it, with colleges uh, coming to do the Northeast. Those tours were amazing. I, I don't know, somewhere in the 80s, 
remember music took a turn and went toward the synthesizer. The guitars kind of phased out and people fell out of that, that, that Southern rock thing. And, uh, um, you know, the almonds quit touring, uh, uh, Rosie and Collins fell apart. Um, um, the outlaws, they, they, they weren't doing the numbers. It just kind of, the only one that really just kept hanging in there was the Charlie Daniels man. And they, they really basically went country, but it just kind of drifted off. And then, um, boy, it made a roaring comeback, you know, it's, it's, it's alive and well now. Now you, you joined the outlaws a while back. Yeah. How, how did that happen? Was that just cause Henry Paul went back or what happened? Because, you know, they were, They've, they've been around forever. My friends just saw them a while ago. But how did how did that come about? Because were you not working with a band right then, or was that a good opportunity for you? Yeah, I, I, it was in 2005, and Huey Thomason, uh, who was was the uh, uh, main lead singer, had passed away. And they had um, wanted me to come join. Henry was re-put put the band back together. Uh, he was the last original member, him and Monty Yoho, the drummer, and had asked me to come and play. And I, I was I, contractually, I couldn't do it at the time because I was right for Sony Music here in Nashville. And then in 2008, um, they asked me again, and I'd lost my, my, my publishing deal. I had, the contract had run out, and I joined the band then and, and went out on the road. I, I, you know, I'd known Henry for all these years from playing in his band, and I, I knew the Outlaws. I met him back in 1972. My brother and I were playing in a bar up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Charlie Brusco, their manager, called up. It was on a Sunday night, and they were just starting out and said, hey, my band the Outlaws in town, can they come in and play a set on your, on your equipment? And we said, sure, and, and we all got to be friends from that point, a, a friendship. And then I joined in 2008 and played with them until 2013, until my, my health, I had some health problems and I needed to come off the road. But I still go out with them. Usually once a year, I'll go out with them and do dates. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Now, now, what's the road now? Like, when you went on 2008, what, what's the difference from when you're a young bucking Bronco in the wild, wild rest to 2008 when you're someone who's a music publisher who, you know, has horses, has a house, is not thinking about, ah, this is just, you know, the lifestyle. What is it like for you when you go on the road now? Is, is it, and how do you keep the energy up? Because, you know, people don't understand what the energy you guys put out there. It's a, well, first thing it's funny to watch when everybody pulls up, they pull their bicycles out, put them on the trailer, and then they get their golf clubs and they put them underneath the bus, you know, which is cool. It's really, uh, you know, people think rock stars, oh, wow, rock stars, they've got the life. It's really hard work. Mainly, you get there, uh, especially when I was back with them they're not doing as many fly days we're on airplanes a lot flying for 12 and 14 hours straight uh or on the bus you you do your show you go you get on that bus and you travel another 12 or 14 8 or 10 hours you get you get to the hotel you might get to get a shower quick shower go with the bus over to the to the show hang out there on the bus all day, do sound check, do the show, 
get back on the bus and repeat it over and over. And it's a very, very structured, it's pretty boring, (laughs) except for that time that you're on stage. But yeah, it does, it wears on you. You, You're up till two and four o'clock in the morning every night by the time you get off stage and everything. And uh, I went, I, I did the Sellersville show and then I rode with them over and did Pittsburgh. Yeah, I just have to do this. I wore out. Now, now, you know, as I said, you have you you're, you have stories, and I look at I'm, I look at your your bio is great, but now Alan Collins bit your almost bit your ear off. I want to hear about that. Oh Lord, Alan, uh, Alan, and I got to be friends at the 1979 Volunteer Jam in Nashville that Charlie Daniels used to be host. He, he, he's the first time that he'd seen the Henry Paul Band, and, and they had. That was the first time that Leonard Skinner performed since the plane crash. Uh, they got up with Charlie and they did Freebird. And that's when Washington Collins, you know, uh, Gary and and, uh, and Alan's band got together. So we ended up doing a two-year tour with it when they put that record anytime, anyplace, anywhere out. That great, great record. Uh, opening dates for those guys. And man, what? They were always up to no good and doing crazy things, and I would ride the bus with them. And then I, I got to uh, Alan invited me. I would come out and play Freebird with every every night with him, which was really cool. I mean, to stand on the stage stage with the Skinner guys, I know, even though Ronnie wasn't there and Steve Gaines, it was still amazing. But we were playing in Columbus, Ohio, and that night our our other guitar player. Uh, Dave Feaster went out with the Rosington Collins crew, which is a big mistake right there, first of all. You don't go out with the, with the Rosington Collins crew. They all went bar hopping, and, and Dave, so I don't know what he did. He got thrown in jail, and uh, so we got him out of jail. And the next day, we went to the show, and and um, we went, well, it was, they, they would serve a big meal for both bands after sound checks, and we'd all sit down and have dinner, and Henry Paul Band there was in there eating dinner, and all of a sudden the door comes flying open, and there's wild-haired Alan Collins. He looks at David Fisher. He goes, "What kind of bird doesn't fly?" He said, "A jailbird." And he runs over and he jumps and he sits right down on my lap, wraps his arms around me, kisses me on the cheek, and then bit me on this earlobe as hard as he could. <laughs> I'm lucky I've got a little mark on it right here, but I'm lucky I still got this thing. It's funny when you think about these stories, because for you, they're everyday occurrences. Like, you also, you drank whiskey with Jimmy Page? He, yeah, we were playing, I was playing with the Bellamy Brothers uh, 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 on 4th of July, and us and the Beach Boys, and uh, biggest show I ever played, a million point one hundred thousand people in that in the mall there, uh, and uh, the day before at the hotel, we all got in and we went down to the bar to have a drink. And there was Jimmy Page down there at the bar talking, you know, just like English gentleman having, having a whiskey, you know, and just like a normal guy. I'm, I'm sitting there just in shock because I'd seen, seen Zeppelin three times when I was a kid, you know, in the 60s. And it was like, <laughs> Jimmy Page! So you've had this great career. Well, you know, what you're doing now is amazing, and it's got to be one of your highlights. But what are a few of the other highlights? When you look back on your career 
and your life, what do you consider some of your highlights? Because, you know, as we get older, what we consider success is different. You know, what we consider highlights is different. But when you look back, what do you want to sit there and, you know, what are some really fond memories you have that, you know, make you very proud of what you've done? Um, you know, um, wow, there's, there's so many great, great things that did happen, uh, in my career. Um, one, one thing is, is, is getting to maintain the friendships that I have over the years with, with a lot of the fans that I've stayed friends with, uh, they do really kind things for me and I get to do kind things back for I've helped a lot out of people out financially. I, I have a, when I, I release so, uh, solo CDs, I have a deal for the first 30 days. If you can't afford a CD, I'll send you one on me. You know, there's a lot of people out there that, that can't even afford to buy a CD and stuff. And, um, uh, the real highlights in my life have been working with the vets. And the biggest highlight is my wife and I became foster parents 12 years ago. And we ended up adopting two children. Um, one of them, uh, he's 14 now. He came to us when he was 22 months old. And his mom and grandfather had blown up their garage making methamphetamine. Uh, and then my little Stella Rose, who's 11, uh, she came to, was four days old. She was addicted to heroin and six other drugs. And we, we helped raise this baby. It was for three months, just screaming in pain. And now she's just this beautiful child. She, she, she was in a variety show last night. She, what she did, she, she danced to Green Day, which was great. You know, everybody else was doing Taylor Swift, and she's doing Green Day. But she uh, did it on a pogo stick with no hands and sang the song with her hands in the... I said, that's a true crane right there. Where where do you think this good heart comes from for you? You know, with the, the adopting and with the veterans. You know, because as I said, a lot of people just don't give a shit. You know, and, and that's honest. People just don't want to help. But where where does that come from? Is that something that you've always felt that way like as a kid you wanted to help or where does it come from you know i did i was when, when I, I was when i was a child uh, i i volunteered at the uh, uh at the uh dog pound i would go down there every week and clean up dog poop and and play with all the animals and stuff and i, I always had this my, my dad was a very very kind man he was a World War II vet, uh, 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 a very well-known businessman in Nashville, and, and had just a super kind. My parents, uh, back in the uh, segregation day, were known to help a lot of African-American people. I mean, they they, they stepped across the lines, and, uh, and, and, and I learned from them. I watched them have the, the help and the love. They were always helping people financially that, that were hurting and always doing really kind things. And, and, it, and it, I really took it to heart. Um, and and, and then the, the really game changer for me was 
you know, I don't know. And it doesn't matter to me what uh, what, what what you believe. But in in uh, in 1988, I came back to came to know Jesus Christ. And when I came to know Jesus, I learned a whole new way of life. Of, of everything I have is, is God's. It belongs to Him. So, you know. If I can have an opportunity to give it away, I give, give away a lot of money. That's 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 great though, I and mean, that's what we should do. Now, what 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 are we doing with the something we're fighting for? Is that going to be in an album, or what's our plan to go forward with the veterans? Uh, well, to go forward with the veterans, it's a, it's a single. Uh, it, it is. It will be on sale um, uh, in two days. It will come come out a limited edition single. Uh, the money. Coming from that will go to the Journey Home Project. It, it is a um, organization started by Charlie Daniels. It helps veterinarians transition veterinarians veterans transition from coming back for overseas to coming back into the United States. It helps them to resettle. So the money from the sales from that will um, go to that. And starting in February, Rogue Warrior Music will kick into action. That will be my 501c3. We will be working with vets, uh, doing uh, therapeutic songwriting. Uh, we'll be, be raising money, providing funds so veterans can get uh, treatment for drugs and alcohol and substance abuse, help them to get jobs or, or, or get starts that way, any way we, you know, we possibly can. That's awesome, man. Before we go, tell me one great, crazy rock and roll story. Oh, man. I know you got a ton of them. Tell me one doozy, because I love hearing the doozies. Well, oh, boy. I don't know. Should I, I, I'll tell you one on me. <laughs> We were out touring with with Alabama. It was the Alabama, the Charlie Daniels Band, and the Bellamy Brothers. And Tommy was in the the the, Bell, the Bell, uh, Charlie Daniels Band, and I was in the Bellamy Brothers. And this tour went on all year long, and uh, and we were a partying bunch, and I mean a partying bunch. There was always something crazy going on in that. Matter of fact, Randy Owens had a big meeting with uh, with uh, both bands at one time, and he said, "How come when these three bands play together, there's always more cocaine around?" And one of the crew guys said, "Well, there's a crane in one band and a crane in the other band, so they started calling me and Tommy the co-cranes." <laughs> but one night, I I used to drink a little too much, maybe a little too much. We, we went over to me and the drummer Mark Hernan and Larry, their pilot, went over to their friend's house and we got into the alcohol and, and substance and we got to drinking and carrying on and went on all night long. Well, I've got the bright idea that I was just going to make fun of everybody in my band and draw pictures on myself. So I got a pen out. And I stripped my clothes off, and I drew pictures all over my body, everywhere. And I went on, the night ended, and I went back and got on the bus. 
Well, little did I know when I got up the next afternoon on that bus and looked at my body, I went, I didn't remember what, I went, what, what happened? It was a Sharpie. You know, with a Sharpie, it takes days to come off. So when I, uh, when I, it, the word got out that this had happened, the other guys told me, me uh, uh, the other guys uh, uh, let the story get around what had happened the night before, and I got to sound check, and I got in there, and I had it, and everybody started laughing and going, oh, here comes PP, and I went, what are y'all talking about? And they said, you know. Penis Picasso. And I, so that was my nickname for the whole rest of the tour was Penis Picasso. I shouldn't have probably told that story. My wife will probably kill me. But. <laughs> oh, dude, that was great. No, so, Billy, how can people how can people get in touch with you and get in touch with, with Rogue okay. Warrior Music? Uh, Rogue Warrior Music, uh, you can do it through my, my site. Uh, you can do it through... Yeah, uh, um, <laughs> really well... Uh, through uh, uh, BillyCrane.com, www.BillyCrane.com. Uh, you can buy the singles through there. You can give money to the Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project. Uh, you can give money through that. And uh, uh, that's pretty much it. So people, go check out Billy. Go, you know, he's from oh, working with the veterans. Oh, also, also, you can, you can, through iTunes, uh, Amazon uh, through all all the usual suspects. So, so people go check them out. Go give some money. Go buy the uh, buy the single. It's it's good stuff. And uh, then go on the video. You can you can you can look it up on YouTube. You know, look up Billy Crane, something worth fighting for. And then he's talking to some veterans in between singing songs. So you really get you really get the impact. So check that out. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.